I would please uh, speak about elements meditation or about your practice this retreat or if you'd like you could speak about uh, what you know about emerging from retreat. So there's three different subjects that you could speak about. Um, this is the end of the um, exposition on the elements retreat and um, January 6, 2017. Uh, we started the retreat the day before New Year's Eve, so this is the first time I've mentioned 2017. So, um, having a bout of sciatic nerve pain during this retreat, I, before I went into retreat, I was uh, diagnosed as having sciatica. And so I was dealing with not being able to sit upright for very long and being really in tune with the body, trying to avoid further injury. What was So I was doing actually quite a bit of moving. So having to care for my body this way... Um, I started really reflecting on aging and impermanence and um, which is related to the contemplation on the four great elements where we see that this is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself and uh, clinging, clinging and wanting things to be different than they are brings suffering as a second arrow or the second dart if we hope or wish for things that are impermanent to be permanent to the something like the body subject to aging not to age not to get sick not to have some kind of problem so I was um, doing some of that kind of contemplation which is related to the sutta, and I did did work somewhat with the elements, the four great elements, contemplating the body in terms of the parts of the body, or the, in terms of the characteristics of the earth, and uh, being solid, or being soft or hard. Did a lot of contemplation of the bones. But I was mostly doing metta bhavana. I was internally um, the reciting in Pali uh, for myself and for all beings. Uh, so that somewhat soothing and calming. Um, I think in a strange way there's like um, those four foundations are what Aya Sobhana says is actually the accurate, accurate translation being aditana, aditan, or it's a, the root is aditan, mm-hmm. so that uh, determination. So um, one must not neglect wisdom, so the wisdom uh, factor is really seeing 
the element says impermanent, not self. Uh, and then one should, um, the second one is to do with truth, we should preserve truth and cultivate relinquishment. So, in a strange way, it seemed like the Metta Bhavana was helping with the relinquishment part because it's like, I'm sending loving kindness to this being and to all beings, but there's also kind of a, a letting go because there's a, with the, with the Metta, there's a kind of equanimity in that we're, we're all kind of in the same boat. Maybe this is actually compassion or something like that. <laughs> all beings are subject to, to aging, sickness, and death, and all of us are deserving of metta. So, um, so somehow that, I don't know, it was, tie, it was somehow this sense of relinquishment was connected to the uh, metta bhavana. And then, uh, actually, the last one, the fourth one is training for peace. And I mean, all of this work is training for peace, for Nibbana. Uh, and you could say also the Metta Bhavana is also a, um, more on the mundane plane, but more of a peaceful you know, state. But yeah, I think the letting go, the relinquishment, somehow, it's got that sense. Uh, then I also, I ended up working with the breath also, uh, which, you know, the mind just naturally inclines towards um, at a certain point during the <laughs> the retreat. So um, that that's what I was working on uh, for this last week, and um, I really appreciate uh, Ayasobana's teaching and all the as, um, people who supported the retreat, especially Amanda and uh, everyone, the other monastics too, for their their practice. So I should pass this on to, I can pass, yeah. Oh, I'm not sure that this recording will actually make it to publication, <laughs> like the other ones. Well, just a lot of appreciation came up for me during the retreat, uh, both for the teachings and for Amanda and for you know, the, the opportunity um, I did have to kind of reset and redirect myself a number of times and kind of felt the disturbance here and chose to, you know, do some more seclusion um, in order to, because I, I could feel like I was coming to the hall kind of in, in, in relationship um, and so then needed to um, to you know, pull away from that, but I did appreciate that the night that we were able to just sit here, to, the two of us. Uh, that felt really, really wonderful. Um, as 
for the this sutta and the teachings. Uh, a lot of appreciation. Um, the, the part about the conceivings was, I guess, what struck me the most. Uh, and I looked up uh, the Pali for that, I think, is um, Manyam Etang. Manyam Etang. Is that I can look it up again. I think I think I'm. M M A N Y N Y. Yeah, well, the, that first part is uh, um, illusion, or um, uh, what, uh, there's another word that starts with an I. That's the. It, it, it's definitely a, a, a creation, but it, but coming out like like you're just making it up, uh, and that was something I had been kind of noting was you know how my mind was making things up based on the pleasant, the unpleasant, the neutral, the uh, and particularly the neutral. You know, when things were kind of in a, in a more not striking me, my mind said, well, let's go find something to strike against. And how that conceiving was then creating the I am, you know, going to or I am this or, uh, you know, and the discomfort of that. Um, so the place that I found from the, the teachings that... Uh, struck the most as far as uh, the practice part was the practicing with the space element uh, and really seeing what those conceivings are doing in that, uh, particularly with the body and what is the difference of the body and the space that the body occupies um, and whether the space within the body but also the space of the body in space um, why, why, which part is, is me, um, which part is not me actually seemed like a better question. Uh, so kind of just sitting with that, but then trying to have not glom onto the conceivings of, of that contemplation and just end up with kind of a, a mind that ends up kind of collected because it's in that space. And <laughs> so I'm not sure how to put it. Uh, I also had the, the sense of the urgency from the story, the Pukasati, um, an interest that he doesn't recognize the Buddha. You know, he's never seen him, but he's definitely committed to the Buddha's teachings. Um, and it doesn't say that the Buddha came to this potter's shed with the intention to teach this individual, now, which he sometimes does, particularly when they're close to death. Um, so that's not, not, not in there. Um, but yet the Buddha also wasn't recognized he wasn't even recognized as a follower of the Buddha you know, he was just recognized as a, a mendicant, a, you know, a seeker uh, and so sharing that space so Pukasati was you know, practicing well but just in regards with you know, another person sharing the shed um, and the uh, the the Buddha actually addresses him as bhikkhu. So, which I also understand is, is, being, is, is just a common form of address to a listener of a sutta. But I, I had kind of the spot in my mind of the, you know, well, what, what is a bhikkhu? You know, when the Buddha is often teaching about what is a bhikkhu, and in so many ways, Pukasati was practicing as a bhikkhu, even though he had not, didn't have the full robes and he didn't have the bowl. Or, I'm not, you know, he didn't have the full set. Um, and then 
this talk actually happened after their night of meditation. So it's not like then he got to go meditate like we did (laughs) on the teachings for a week. Um, He's not really sure how long he had between the teachings and his death. Um, But in that time he had to at least have met another bhikkhu or someone who spoke to a bhikkhu because the bhikkhus then came back later to ask the Buddha about, okay, this person who gave a brief instruction to has died, where did he go? Um, And it was interesting that so much of the Buddhist teaching was focused on uh, the teaching for awakening for full arahantship, and he was describing what it is to be an arahant. Um, Pukasati didn't quite make that, but he he got to non-returner in whatever that length of time. (laughs) So... um, he and and in some ways, my of course, my mind I was thinking, well, he's at the potter shed. He's going to be able to get a bowl pretty quickly. <laughs> you know? And I also noticed that he actually asked for the upasampada. He did not ask for pabaja and upasampada, which is common in in the suttas. So I don't know what where you know, and I don't want to make too much of that. But you know, um, he definitely was practicing even though he hadn't yet been admitted to the Sangha. Um, and I think that just also in the Buddha's response to the bhikkhus, he was really stressing that, uh, that the practice was there. And in the Buddha giving the teaching, you know, he comments on, ah, oh, this person's really practicing. Uh, so just that sense of urgency that, that arises, that he left his kingdom to go find the Buddha, to go forth, um, to be able to practice, um, and he did, um, and that the Buddha had compassion to do that, to, to give him the teaching. So that, that also just you know, helped me kind of rouse um, you know, the, the wish and the will to practice. Uh, the other area, as I assume mentioned, was the relinquishment aspect of it, that, and working with the putting each of those conceivings down, putting it down, putting it down, uh, you know, trying to have the wisdom to put it down. Um, so, kind of my takeaway at this point. I'll do it. No. Oh, she wants to stand, stand up. <laughs> okay, did you turn it off? No, please ask. Because I don't have so much to say, because I have to admit, most evenings I realize I was sitting here quite. I'm going to respond to a couple of things that Sister uh, Seminary Sister Neonica mentioned about this story and the story at the end. Uh, my, uh, we know for sure that the way that ordination was done uh, evolved uh, during uh, the Buddha's lifetime and even after the Buddha's Parinibbana in terms of the uh, procedures that have to be followed for ordination. So the first ordination was just ehi bhikkhu, ehi bhikkhuni, and um, uh, only uh, in this one you can see that there's the requirement to have the bowl in the road with uh, an additional requirement, and it could be that uh, the requirement to have a, a pabhaja and upasampada is to 
separate events that happened at different times or at the same time, and that that was something that could have came afterwards. Mm -hmm. uh, just the same way, uh, the term um, hiku, which literally means beggar, uh, uh, could have been a general term for a, a recluse, But the Pukasati said at the beginning that he's gone forth under Gautama. 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 He's, that he's, he's entered into the, the Buddha Sasana and he's just looking for his teacher. So uh, we know that at different times in history, uh, during the transmission of Buddhism, uh, that people self-ordained when they heard the Dhamma, but they didn't have access to a, a qualified, fully ordained Sankha. They ordained themselves. Oh, I didn't know that. I in didn't... China. Oh, China. Yeah. Oh. They go forth, like they left it. They were they ordained themselves and they themselves to be because they're Deaconese. And then, uh, subsequently, uh, when there was like more travel, there was uh, the availability of qualified teachers or even hearing about the possibilities and we know about stories where the uh, Aho Sangha, uh, the seven in China with the Bikuni Sangha, uh, with the transmission uh, from Sri Lanka to, to China. Uh, they were ordained as Bikunis, but they came to doubt whether the ordination was valid or not. So they sent away and they got some qualified Bikunis from Sri Lanka to go. Um, by way of a Siam into southern China and to reordain them in order to uh, satisfy their doubts. Uh, and this, in a certain way, comes around to um, my idea that um, with the surrounding story that this was happening in, in uh, Gandhara, which was a state where um, Buddhism was being missionized, that uh, understanding that from the very beginning uh, there was an evangelical um, missionary aspect uh, to the Dhamma just from the beginning and the Buddhism was going around and, and or the teaching was being carried around to the uh, different cultures and different different spaces. So it's it does seem like uh, you know there's something in that got into the surrounding story that has somehow element that's connected with the transmission of the Buddhism outside of its birthplace to the foreign countries. Um, uh, why Fukusati uh, in this framing story was made to die and why it's almost an archetype or a, an element of a fable that if somebody is just at the point of full awakening but they've not yet gotten into rose, then they die. Uh. Mm -hmm. um, and 
it sort of makes me remember how in other religions that um, you know like you have to die to your old way of life in order to be reborn in a new in a new life or that the, the symbol like of the, you know the snake that sheds its skin so his old being is shed away and then he gets like reborn as a as a new uh, creature having you know cast aside the the mortal frame of his previous existence and and so it uh, it does uh, seem to me that in a way that uh, especially when we when we uh, awaken uh, during well in the beast of life uh, after awakening that we we would experience a kind of a rebirth uh, that some aspect of the previous self namely the asanas, the defilements has been cut down cut off like a palm tree and cut off so that it would never arise again so in a certain way some part of the old what used to be part of the individual has been utterly thrown away and so there is a kind of a death and a kind of a rebirth and so uh, maybe uh, maybe some kind of religious uh, symbolism crept into the framing story um, but we could also read into the um, mythology we could read into it a kind of an actual part of the teaching which is is so very uh, core and fundamental in the Dhamma namely <coughs> this idea of um, that there are these transformations of insight where some part of us is actually really finished and not coming back again um, so yeah, it's a nice it's a nice uh, it's a good way to Uh, I'm aware that uh, in terms of the trans, the transition from being in retreat to being in life, uh, that that uh, should be done very carefully. I know that our founding teacher, Aditalak, always emphasizes very much to be uh, very uh, gentle and uh, caring and um, in a way cautious in uh, emerging from retreat in order to be able to consolidate whatever was gained. Uh, for me, uh, for some reason, what seemed like the best um, protection to emerge well from this retreat uh, was to do a lot of reflecting of uh, gratitude uh, for all of the factors and the individuals and the persons and the beings who uh, made it possible for this to happen including the ones who are here supporting the retreat, the uh, way that our community friends uh, supporting the retreat are kind of like a, a link to the world out there, but it's a very safe link because they're not hurting us while they come to bring the dana and to sit in meditation with us. And also thinking back about all of the... Uh, Buddhists who have um, all of the persons who've 
uh, showed me a truth, or given me an opportunity to awaken uh, in times past, including those who were good and kind teachers who uh, had something that was for me to emulate, and also including just ordinary um, people or ordinary situations that somehow or other revealed and opened up uh, something that was real and true. Um, so, so I've been actually the past day uh, thinking a lot about gratitude. So this uh, concludes this retreat altogether. Sadhu, 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 anumodami. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.